This is Recorded Future, Inside Security Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 183 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. On today's podcast, we welcome back Recorded Future Senior Intelligence Analyst Greg Lesnowich. He shares his insights on what goes on behind the scenes with the Recorded Future INSIC Threat Research Team and why he finds their work challenging and rewarding. Then we discuss the latest on the TrickBot Global Botnet, how they operate, who they target, and efforts by the intelligence community and private industry to take them down, or at the very least, hinder their efforts. Stay with us. So I tend to handle um, discovery and tracking uh, of adversary infrastructure um, and malware deployments. So uh, sort of the technical side uh, of the diamond model of tracking, uh, you know, the APTs and crime actors and things like that. Can you? I mean, can you give us some insights is when you talk about discovery? I mean. What goes into that behind the scenes? Is it is it largely is it a technical endeavor? Is it uh, are you using uh, intelligence that's coming in from multiple sources that you have access to at Recorded Future? What's the mix there? So it, that's a very interesting question because it it's, it hits the nail on the head of the reason that I that I got into this field, um, and mm. it, sort of in particular into threat research. Um, so many companies put out this great research all the time about new or updated threats, um, like ESET, FireEye, Kaspersky, CrowdStrike, all, all these companies, um, including our own. And one of the things that that bothered me when I read the original uh, Equation Group report was, how do they know all of this? Um, and it sort of has extrapolated from there to, to say, some of it is is very technical. It's um, so we we do a few exercises where we'll model um, a few things that you know other companies have put out or that we've put out from a certain threat actor, um, mm. certain patterns in whether in particular for me for infrastructure whether it's a hosting provider, a domain registrar, um, places like that, or uh, techniques that they've used in their files uh, or types of victims that they target and and sort of the malicious documents they use for those things and sort of pivoting off of that and going and looking in those places. So sometimes it's looking, you know, trying to enumerate every uh, IP address on a suspicious hosting provider um, and seeing if any of those are linked to, you know, largely unknown malware families or, you know, are hosting something suspicious. Uh, Sometimes that is sort of as simple as looking for, you know, keywords um, inside of uh, a malicious word document, something to the effect of, um, you know, for, for espionage purposes, you know, anything that mentions an embassy or a ministry of foreign affairs um, mm. and also has macros embedded in it is going to sort of rise to the top. Um, so I think sort of like anywhere in a sock, um, you sort of have these broad detection rules that make a lot of noise that require some sort of hand sifting in terms of finding new document lures um, and things like that. And then once we find one interesting, uh, we sort of go through the process of trying to download the, you know, the secondary payload um, and things like that. 
to then try and you know do discovery on the campaign. And so it, it is sort of the the manual effort versus you know the the more automated efforts of uh, once you know something you can put a little bit more scripting and automation behind surfacing things like it uh, and you know getting alerts uh, or whatever when um, new things like it pop up. So yeah, it's it's pretty fun. It's it took a lot of listening to old conference talks. Um, talking to industry peers and things like that and sort of realizing, oh, okay, it's there isn't a magic bullet for finding things. It's just you got to go look. Um, and sometimes looking takes a long time. So, Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is, you, you know, it's easy to joke and say, you know, that's the glamorous part of the business, right? That sort <laughs> of that, that dogged determination to, to um, see something all the way through, to have a hunch and, and track it down. Um, but I would imagine that the more you do this, you start to have pretty good instincts as well. Yeah, I, I think that it is um, one of the things that we talk about a lot when training either our clients or you know teams internally is that there's pattern recognition only sort of occurs after you know a few thousand reps or a few thousand hours of seeing something, and so something that stands out to you know our very seasoned, very talented reverse engineers you know, say, you know, as they're looking through a malicious file might not stand out to the average person. Um, but the average person, you know, that, that wants to get into this can see, can most of the time see, put a link between, okay, this is a suspicious looking file that has, um, you know, a, an Adobe PDF, uh, icon, but is actually an executable. Mm. Um, and, and so I think starting at, at that sort of broad level and sort of, you know, th things that are easy to spot as like sort of, two things that don't necessarily belong together is really helpful to start. You know, it's sort of where many of us start that don't have a computer science uh, or engineering background. That's sort of where many of us start and you just sort of get deeper and deeper from there. It's that the, the more I speak on this, it sounds like I should write a, a manifesto of the levels to it. But I, I, even I don't fully understand, you know, how deep or how wide uh, discovery efforts go across our industry. Yeah, but I, I suppose, I mean, uh, part of what makes your job interesting is that you're never running out of new things to learn and new places and, and uh, ways to explore. That's that's absolutely true. And and sometimes that takes you uh, back to, you know, square one or zero, um, you know, trying to learn a programming language to then understand how it can get used maliciously can be some work or same thing with, you know, learning a, a protocol or even more, you know, sort of basic tool, you know, basic analysis or, you know, common industry tools. Uh, but it always seems to be worth it. And yeah, I think that's the thing that, that keeps me hooked on it is both the, the detective allure of finding something that no one else has found before, um, as well as the fact that you have to keep learning, you know, every day on the job. Well, before we get into some of the specific topics we're going to talk about today, I mean, one more thing that, that I'm curious about, which is you mentioned of you know, you, you you alluded to those of us who don't have computer science degrees, and I think that's a really good point for some of the folks who may be listening, uh, who are co either considering a career in cybersecurity or, or on their way, you know, in the midst of their studies, that, um, you know, that's certainly now more than ever, that's not a prerequisite. In, indeed. For those listening, my first jobs after college, I was a butcher, and then I worked construction and swung a hammer for, you know, eight to 12 hours a day. There, there are always carryover skills from other industries or other um, degrees that you can get. 
you know, for the for the international affairs students out there or, you know, international affairs graduates, whether it's the language that you learned or, you know, understanding how countries want to interact with one of each other, those skills are valuable in this field. And if you want to get technical, all the effort that you took to learning those international affairs things um, doesn't mean that you can't then apply that ability to learn more technical, hardened skills. Obviously, some, you know, have to balance the having a day job and, and a role to fulfill with doing that. Um, but you can put your mind to it and, and get after it. Yeah. And there's uh, the, the last thing I'll say on that is that there's so the singular maybe benefit of, you know, the COVID pandemic has been there is so much additional conference and learning material on YouTube and the Internet now that you can find an intro or a 201 course to almost anything online, um, especially computer, you know, whether it's threat intelligence or reverse engineering or analysis related. So, yeah, the, the, the building blocks are out there if, if people want to go look for them. Well, let's talk about uh, some specific things that you and your team have been working on lately. Well, let's start off by talking about um, TrickBot, and there's been some recent takedown efforts there. Can we just uh, back up a little bit? Can you give us a little overview on uh, what we're talking about with TrickBot here? Sure. Uh, so TrickBot um, can sometimes be a, a misnomer in our industry for a banking trojan. It is so much more than that. It is hmm. a malware that, that can get loaded either via other means, uh, for, whether that's you know its own spam or via you know Emotet spam that then deploys um, TrickBot. It comes with a number, or, or can download rather, a number of modules that allow it to then go from being just you know a, a backdoor vector into the infected host to then being able to move laterally, infect other hosts on the network. Um, send spam to other unconnected hosts um, and things like that. The actors behind it have been linked to uh, a po developing a post-exploitation tool called PowerTrick um, and two additional, I'll call them broadly malware families, uh, one that's referred to as Anchor and one that's referred to as Bazaar, Loader, and Backdoor. Um, mm. FireEye calls the most prominent versions of those KegTap and BeerBot. You know, to the average listener, all, all of the, the bizarre um, and keg tap things sort of lump together. And the, the interesting thing about all this development is that they've sort of shifted over time from really focusing on compromising victims to gathering, you know, by gathering banking credentials and then, you know, stealing that information um, to add to their own, you know, cash out payment. Uh, to really, really developing tools to either sell access to other to ransomware actors or deploy some of their own pre-built tooling to monetize the infections themselves. Uh, allegedly, you know, I, I don't have the, I'm not in the room with these actors and I don't know that they are the <laughs> right. ones, the developers are the ones pushing the buttons. Um, but what they've effectively done is um, created, you know, some pretty potent first stages of an infection tooling. And recently uh, that whole bizarre family has been linked to uh, a pretty nasty set of intrusions targeting hospitals that have used then a, uh, a fairly unique version of Cobalt Strike, at least on the, the server side, to then move laterally throughout a network, uh, use a litany of uh, open source tooling um, to get access to the main controller and deploy ransomware, uh, Ryuk specifically across uh, victim environments. It's it, it sort of has taken our industry by storm. I'm sure a lot of people have seen, uh, whether it's news articles or you know threat research coming out about it, um, my friend Kimberly Goody and her team at FireEye put out a really awesome blog um, about sort of a start-to-finish intrusion and all the tools that those actors will use to deploy ransomware. 
Um, and, I, and I think it's it's a nice moment of our industry coming together, despite what the horrible things that are happening, to sort of draw a heavy line and say, hey, this is not okay. You know, we respond, I, I think everyone in the industry responds to intrusions, including ransomware pretty regularly. But, you know, the targeting of human life is something that I think we all see as, as off limits, um, especially during a pandemic. Add to that the tension and pandemonium that's come along with uh, this election season obviously has doesn't have anyone feeling relaxed right now. And so add to this, this, you know, wretched campaign against uh, hospitals um, by the, by the trick, you know, linked to the trick bot authors has, uh, has everyone pretty on edge and upset with them right now. But uh, I think everyone's doing, you know, going above and beyond uh, to try and thwart these guys from getting into networks. And so what are, what have the efforts been to take TrickBot down and how has how have the people running that botnet responded? Uh, one of the things that, that I sort of want to uh, get ahead of, too, is uh, our data suggests that um, this Ryuk campaign is not in, re- in response to TrickBot takedown efforts. We saw domains um, being registered in August for this campaign, uh, certificates and servers being stood up. Uh, a couple days prior to the first TrickBot disruption. Um, now, I, I think it's a little silly to say that they're not related. You know, if you're preparing to, uh, I guess, engage with someone and they, you know, wreck your car or something like that, you're going to be more aggressive, I would imagine. But I don't think it's one-to-one TrickBot take ta- trick takedowns led to this. The first of these, uh, a U.S. government entity is alleged. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if anyone from that area or that entity is confirmed, uh, but they pushed, um, in, in a very clever way, uh, pushed fake uh, configuration updates to TrickBot uh, victims, effectively cutting them off from the botnet, which was, I, I think, I think it's been a little bit undersold uh, how cool that is. You know, they, they were <laughs> able, they, they knew enough about how this malware operated and functioned, you know, were able to be, they're a government entity. They they have the the legal right to do this. Compromise at least some portion of their network uh, and their infrastructure to then push these fake updates to effectively poison the you know their implants. It's fun. It's funny calling it a takedown attempt because what it really did is it severed ongoing intrusions, um, mm-hmm. which to me is a little bit more effective um, if you have like a day to do something because taking down a botnet we've seen over time is really really tricky. Cutting off current infections and buying those victims some time. Who knows how many more ransomware incidents we'd be looking at, you know, in late October, early November, had that not occurred. Um, and I think that that occurred on September 22nd. In the next couple of weeks after that, uh, Microsoft put out legal proceedings that they they basically went to a judge and got the rights to seize uh, TrickBot command and control servers. Um, initially, this was just in the U.S., but Microsoft's lawyers seemed pretty good, and they were able to sort of lead what what, what was an industry coalition with uh, Lumen and ESET and Symantec, um, and I think FSISEC was also involved uh, to push all of that. You know, grab identify you know TrickBot's both tier one um, and plugin infrastructures, which are sort of the initial communication and customer management infrastructure, um, and then sort of uh, the secondary infection management. Uh, infrastructure to add plugins, move laterally, et cetera. They were able to seize roughly like 96% of the botnet, uh, the botnet's uh, command and control servers, which 
turns out to be a pretty limited number compared to you know older uh, or bigger botnets, which again is they, they did this on a um, pretty interesting uh, legal reasoning in that the TrickBot authors had abused Microsoft uh, trademarks uh, in their code, which is pretty mm. unique. And, and it seems to be a, a clever legal way of being able to action against these actors. And again, I, I know that some in our industry have uh, sort of said that this effort hasn't been effective. I would argue that it has, you know, taking down, I, I don't think that Microsoft and ESET and these other companies have sat around and said, you know, let's try this. I, I think that it's a calculated move. And so in, in the wake of that, you know, obviously that probably meant a number of you know, their command and control infrastructure is messed up, for lack of a better term. Um, mm. And, you know, it probably meant a, a loss of a number of infections. And so from that, we've seen the botnet try and battle back. Uh, I, Microsoft themselves stated that uh, they don't expect the botnet to just disappear. Uh, they expect a fight. And so we've seen TrickBot revert back to uh, command and control infrastructure that wasn't taken down. And some of their uh, – they've created more um, – infrastructure, but they're pushing it out at a much slower rate than they were before. When they've been trying to spread and you know get new infections since this, um, predominantly through Emotet spam, uh, they have, Emotet is another um, very, very large botnet, you know, one of the most prolific spam senders in the world. Um, right. they, they sell access as a service. And in a lot of instances since the TrickBot takedown efforts began, uh, Emotet has been observed dropping TrickBot. Usually, or historically, there have been anywhere from 30 to 40 servers embedded into TrickBot's uh, configuration. Uh, so it's an encrypted file that TrickBot reads once it executes on a victim host um, and then tries to connect to one after another to see you know, if any are online. And then once they're online, they sort of get instructions from there and then you know, go about their, their evil business. What's changed is as a number of those servers have been taken offline, the amount of servers that we've seen included in every configuration has dropped significantly. Um, I think it dropped to a minimum of around 12 servers um, and then jumped back up to around uh, 16 the last time that I checked, uh, which hmm. I, was about two days ago. What, what's interesting about including all those servers is that it does tip to us. They, they at least think that they have some amount of control left on those servers. They've, sort, they've, they've played a little bit with the protocol that they use to communicate um, they've used uh, instead of you know traditional servers, they've used a Tor Onion site, so you know the alleged dark web, uh, a server not available, you know, not accessible via normal web browser, but requires uh, using a Tor browser or a Tor-based connection to connect to it, using that as a fallback command and control channel. Um, and so it's been it's been pretty interesting watching them scramble to sort of um, piecemeal their botnet back together. And I think the final note that I that I have on their response has been they switched largely back over to um, routers as the command and control nodes, um, hmm. rather than you know renting a server from or compromising a server at a shady hosting provider. To me, the benefit of that is that it's just harder to take down. Um, it's tough to subpoena uh, or get access to you know a compromised home router compared to. Um, a well-known virtual private server provider that you know Microsoft talks to all the time, and you know you you can lean on those relationships and, and say, okay, you know we can convince you to help. It's it's tough. It's tougher to seize uh, a router that's you know in front of someone's business or someone's home. They're, they're, they've made an effort to insulate themselves uh, from further takedown efforts. 
Where do you think things are going to go from here? I mean, the TrickBot is is sort of down but not out. Um, any any thoughts on where we might see them go from from this point? I, I think in the near term, they're going to keep trying to rebuild uh, their botnet infrastructure and net new infections, uh, whether that's through email test spam uh, or sending of their own spam, perhaps maybe some alternative methods. Assuming that they're the same actors that are behind uh, the Bizarre family, it seems that they've sort of put all their eggs in that basket for the immediate near term, you know, the next couple weeks to a month, because we've seen that infrastructure continue to grow and continue to insulate itself. That makes it really hard to detect and track. And we've only seen it continue to grow. Uh, so all all indications sort of point to they're going to continue sort of the royal day that an entity that has overlap with TrickBot uh, seems intent on continuing this ransomware surge against, you know, U.S., potentially uh, Canadian and, you know, Western hospitals in the near term. Yeah, what an interesting view you and the, and the rest of the folks on the INSIC team have on all of this stuff. I mean, it's uh, it must be uh, you said it yourself, you know, it's, it's a certain component of it is a lot of fun. Yeah, it's it's fun. I think that this week, you know, the last week of seeing these intrusions has been more stressful uh, significantly than usual. You know, seeing state-on-state espionage uh, attempts or not that normal criminal behavior is is okay, but, you know, stealing someone's credit card data is recoverable. You know, Mm. states targeting each other to steal data from a Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I I have to imagine that if you're a diplomat, you know that you're going to be spied on, whether that's electronically, whether that's through other means. Um, it, it sort of comes with the gig of working for an entity like that. And I think that the the targeting of, of things that you can't undo, you know, if we, we saw an individual lose their life, unfortunately, uh, in Germany, I think a couple weeks ago. And and so this this has been one of the last fun weeks. And so I think that we're but it, it has really kicked up our efforts to, you know, identify ways to proactively monitor and prevent, you know, infections from occurring at our clients, you know, anyone around the industry that we can share that information. Our thanks to Recorded Futures' Greg Lesnowich for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Futures Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.